Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, tobacco companies around the world have been dealing with declining smoking rates for years. As a result, many of the companies are undergoing a transformation from traditional cigarettes to less harmful alternatives like vaping and heated tobacco. To help us kind of get up to speed on what's happening in the tobacco business, we welcome Yasek Olsek. Uh, Yasek is the Chief Operating Officer for Philip Morris International. He joins us on the phone. Yasek, thanks so much for joining us. Wondered if you could just give us a sense for what Philip Morris International is trying to do here to kind of make that transition from complete reliance on cigarettes to vaping and heated tobacco and other products. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, look, I mean, we started a few years ago with, you know, once we developed the product, you know, we've developed the science around the product to substantiate and be sure really that the product is a better alternative for, you know, those who don't uh, don't quit. We launched it so far in a 48 market. So this is, I think, the best testimony how serious we are about essentially one day stop selling a combustible products and go to the smoke less or non-combustible alternatives. 48 markets, the market share in this market is well above 5% now and continue and, 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 and is growing. Um, we allocated most of our resources, more, more than 60% of our resources are now for the alternative product. And I think we make this very wise decision, and I am very proud for you know this company, this board, that we could stood up and say, look, there is a problem. Let's solve the problem. Let's offer those who you know don't switch, don't quit, sorry, offer a better alternative. And we're very committed one day to you know have Philip Morris, who will be just remembered that you know this was the company in the past who used to sell combustible cigarettes. I think it's for the benefit of a billion people and and many other smokers and many other people living around them. So we are very excited about this whole thing and uh, we will not stop. Jacek, how conclusive have your studies been about the degree to which these heat not burn products are safer uh, or less cancerous than, than smoked cigarettes? Look, it's very much ultimately to the um, uh, to the authorities or organizations like FDA in a case of the U.S. to to make the final assessment. If you would ask my scientists, we are we are very very sure that this product is a better alternative, a safer product than a than a combustible cigarette. But to, to the degree that uh, would actually, I have to. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean if you allow me, it doesn't mean that the product is safe. Okay, the product is safer. I mean, so today. Based on this knowledge, we know that if you want to continue smoking, this is not a great idea. You should either quit. If you can't quit, go and switch to this product. You have a very significant reduction in exposure to the most harmful toxicants in the smoke because we eliminated combustion, etc. Obviously, smoker, while switching to this product, uh, reduces significantly the exposure. So one would expect, and some of our, our studies actually concluded this, that uh, as much as you can obviously conclude based on a clinical studies, that this has a positive impact, uh, very similar in many occasions to 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 the same uh, things as you would uh, quit smoking. 
but as I said, it's up to the regulators. FDA issued very recently our PMTA authorization order. We are waiting uh, FDA decisions with regards to the modified uh, uh, risk application. And uh, I'm very helpful. I'm very hopeful that you know soon FDA will reach that conclusion. So, so Jacek, so generally, just clear, clarify a little bit for me. Just what has the FDA ruled about your products to date, and what else are you awaiting from them? <clears throat> the FDA authorized us to start commercialization of ICOS, the product, uh, on the U.S. Uh, in the U.S. Uh, based on the assessment that from the public. Uh, uh, health uh, perspective, this is uh, the right thing to have that product in the market, which means that the product has to prove that uh, not only obviously is uh, uh, worse than or is not worse than a cigarette, but the product, and this is in a statement coming from FDA, significantly reduced the human potential human exposure to a number of the very harmful constituents, including the, the carcinogens. This is not conclusive from FDA at this stage whether the product, uh, uh, that usage of this product will reduce that risk. That's the subject of the, the second application, which is now pending with FDA. But as a first step, I think uh, statements from FDA were, were very clear. It is better, frankly speaking, for smokers if they don't quit to switch to this product. Yes. Jacek, I, I want to shift gears a little bit because you're talking about diversifying away from just cigarettes uh, that are traditional mm -hmm. in the way that they're smoked. What about the cannabis industry? Do you foresee a time when that will provide a significant portion of Philip Morris revenues? Definitely not at this stage. Our focus uh, is entirely on eliminating the combustion from the, to, to, from the tobacco. And I think if we really want to be successful in a, in a shorter period of time, uh, I'd rather have our company being focused just on the tobacco and the problem of smoking and the cigarettes, etc. I think any diversion at this moment of time would just dilute our resources. Having said so, uh, while developing these products, we have developed a tremendous uh, scientific and technological capability at, at Philip Morris International. And as we know, many other products are also being used for the combustion, etc. And, you know, based on our knowledge, this is not necessarily the best thing uh, one could do. But as I said, from a company, from a corporate perspective, from the corporate objective perspective, for us, we just focus on solving that problem first. And, you know, then we'll see what the future will, will bring us. Jacek Olsak, thank you so much for being with us. Jacek Olsak is Chief Operating Officer at Philip Morris International, joining us uh, by phone. Interesting to see how they are shifting gears to try to increase uh, the proportion of their business that is the heat not burn product, the vaping products. Uh, and Bloomberg Intelligence estimates that about 5% of the revenues in 2018 came from these products. Uh, the goal is by 2021 for 12%. Uh, so just to give you a sense of how much they're hoping to ramp it up. We've been talking about jobs all morning after that disappointing U.S. payrolls report. It was below all the estimates, including the lowest, uh, with both the headline number coming in weaker than expected, as well as wage gains. Here to look under the hood of the U.S. jobs market is Tom Gimbel, founder and chief executive officer of LaSalle Network, based in Chicago, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Tom, You've been very bullish on this bond, uh, on this jobs market for a while, and I'm wondering: Does this jobs report some of the other data we've seen 
make you change your view. You ready for this? I'm it's, ready for it's, this. It's not a bad report today. Uh-oh. Okay, lay it, lay it out under for the us. Throw it, it down. If it's not a quarter of a million jobs every month, people are unhappy. We added 75,000 jobs. Unemployment stayed flat. We've been going for, what, 100 months in a row of, of job creation? And, and it's not... And it's okay. not yeah, this is actually the argument, right? This is full employment, right? Yes. This is what happens when you yes, get full Yes, this employment. is a good thing. <laughs> but, but then my question is, if this is full employment, why are we not seeing wages increase at a faster pace? Because it's a global economy and we're not competing against the guy down the street. We're competing against people in China and India and Mexico. All ter- I, I would say that before the tariff conversation, that when jobs can be done, 30 years ago, it was a call center for minimum wage being shifted overseas. Today, it's legal work, accounting work, IT work, high salary jobs being shifted overseas. If you can have somebody who's got a PhD and a master's degree doing IT work or accounting work for 50% of the cost, people say, oh, that's not being patriotic. That's the exact same thing as saying you don't hire you hire a freelancer to paint your house because you save fifty percent. Why don't you support the economy and give it to the person who's employing thirty people as a painting company? So, what do you think the new kind of normal is in terms of job creation, given where we are in a cycle? And you know, is because I guess the, the three month run rate is still one hundred fifty thousand jobs, but job creation is supply and demand, right? So, so demand is high, supply is low, and you can get what you can get. So, you'd say. Why isn't wages going up if that's the case? They are going up a little bit, but we're in a situation also that there isn't a new skill set that's being created. This isn't the mid-2000s when no one understood e-commerce. No one understood data analytics. We're a more sophisticated employer market than we've ever been before. And so things have just stabilized from a standpoint of companies aren't throwing crazy money out there anymore. They understand how to drive revenues and profitability. And the biggest thing is the, the economy, it's interesting. It's, I don't believe it's as tied to the stock market as it used to be. And when I say used to be, maybe a year or two years ago, where the volatility on the stock market used to drive the job numbers a little bit. The C-suite would get a little bit nervous if there was volatility. Now the stock market volatility is the same way of global volatility with Trump. Okay, well, put us, putting aside stock market volatility, yep. there's been a lot of volatility and discussions about trade. Uh, there was a great story on Bloomberg.com this morning talking about how CEOs, even though they don't necessarily think that some of the worst case scenarios with the trade wars will come to pass, they have to start preparing for that. So given the fact that you're talking with chief executive officers about their hiring plans, are they pulling back some of their plans because of this uncertainty? No, not not as of now. I mean, the Mexico thing is so new, right? I mean, that was the the window on that was 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 so short. But with with China, there's a short term and there's a long term view. And a lot of companies, especially small to mid sized companies, that have always been the 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 job hotbed for where where jobs are created in this country, they do realize that there may be a short term six to twelve months of a dip. But the whole goal of doing it is you either drive costs down because of the tariffs that that China will renegotiate or manufacturing will come back here and their businesses will increase eventually. That is the point. No one talks about it a lot. But if the price is even out, if salaries uh, overseas rise and the price to import, where are you going to do it? You're going to build it in America. It's a long-term play, but that is the goal. Are you are you seeing any signs? I mean, as you talk to, I guess, yeah. companies that, you know, you guys are one of the biggest recruiters and staffers around. Yeah. Are, are companies actually thinking that? Are they investing in for that? Or are they just saying, listen, let's see how this 
plays out over the next, you know, could be a year or two. The biggest difference between now and the bull market of the mid-2000s is it's not mass hiring. Right. You don't see people going out and signing a lease for another 100,000 square feet and hiring 200 people. But you do see consistent hiring. You see companies backfilling attrition. And the, where you're going to start seeing things towards the latter half of the year, I feel, in, in wage growth to an extent, is companies are now giving money to their employees in advance of them having to leave and get a counteroffer. It's a really interesting phenomenon. They're giving salary increases ahead of schedule so people won't go look and leave. In what areas of work? Uh, I, I, maybe not in broadcasting with the look you just gave me. <laughs> well, no, but. I'm <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. I will say that, no, the reason why I say that is because if that's the case, again, it goes back to why we're not seeing it in the average numbers. Well, the average numbers are skewed, too, across the board with service workers and different things. We've also seen, you see the, the boost, minimum wage has a boost when they do that in municipalities, and there's those issues. So, I mean, sometimes the numbers are the numbers, and you guys have economists on here all the day. They're the ones to tell you why, how, how the the numbers can be manipulated. I'm telling you that companies are hiring. It's a great job market if you have the skills. And the really other interesting fact is employees aren't leaving to get more money elsewhere at other companies because they don't want to be the low man on the totem pole because they're right. afraid, just like you're saying you think companies are afraid. Yep. So it's a really interesting sociological dynamic in business. <laughs> Tom Gimbel, thanks so much. Tom Gimbel, founder and CEO of LaSalle Network, one of the leading staffing and recruiting firms in the country, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We are trained on the Fed today and whether we're going to get rate cuts, but trade is very much in the forefront uh, for both companies and traders. And joining us here to talk about what big companies are doing, particularly in the industrial space, uh, with respect to the threat of tariffs is our own, of course, Brooke Sutherland, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Brooke, how much action have industrial companies taken to immunize themselves from some of the tariffs that have been threatened so far? So they've all been talking about it an awful lot, and they've all been looking at particularly minimizing their exposure to China. Uh, that could mean sourcing products from different places. That could mean even doing something as drastic as moving a manufacturing facility. Um, but you know, in terms of actually limiting their exposure to China, it's a little bit tricky because they all evoke these localized manufacturing strategies that are meant to sort of insulate them from the trade war fallout. And I think what we've really seen is that you can have a localized manufacturing you know, strategy, but you're never going to have your entire supply chain concentrated in an individual country anywhere where you sell your products. And so I think you see these manufacturers continually keep getting tripped up in the trade war. And I think part of the difficulty is there's just so much uncertainty that even making these kinds of changes just gets very tricky. I think you have to make a bet on First of all, do you think Trump's going to get reelected? Are we still going to be talking about this in a few years? Or do you think this is going to peter out? Um, you know, these are very expensive decisions. And I just don't think that a lot of CEOs know where to go. And the other thing is that you may make a move that that ends up looking very stupid later on down the road. GoPro said it was moving its facilities in China to Mexico. And Whoops. now, of course, we have <laughs> tariffs being put back on Mexican goods. And who knows how long that will last. So it's just I mean, it's a very dicey environment to make any types of changes to your supply chain, but you have to do it at the end of the day if you want to try to protect your business from these increased costs. It's interesting. You raise a good point. As I think about some of these global industrial companies based in the U.S., and I think about their supply chains, and they're just, you know, mind, it's, they're so incredibly complex. I wonder, realistically, 
what they can even do. Uh, at the end of the day, it's interesting to see um, you know, how much they just pass along or take into their margin. Are you hearing anything from the companies about any kind of percentages they think they can pass along versus mitigate through you know, relocating some, some suppliers? So right now, the industrial sector has actually been very successful at passing on price increases, but that is based on the tariffs that we've seen thus far. And you are starting to see some cracks in the industrial economy. We had obviously those not great numbers uh, from ISM earlier this week and from IHS market on the manufacturing activity in the U.S. sort of teetering on the brink of slipping into a contraction. So I don't know how much demand there is to soak up another round of price increases. And that's why it gets really problematic when you start talking about putting tariffs on the remaining $325 billion of goods from China or, you know, following through on this Mexico threat. So one argument has been that these tariffs, should they go into effect, could be short-term pain for these companies and for the broader U.S. economy. But down the road, it will actually be a benefit for the United States because uh, a lot of these companies will just simply bring their supply chains back to uh, the U.S. and that will add to the economy here. Have you seen any evidence of companies looking to do that, to simplify their supply chains, perhaps bring more back to to the United States? No. And I think part of the issue is that most of the companies that I cover are multinational. And sort of the flip side to the argument that you're making is that you could see a lot of these companies find themselves shut out of China because China is increasingly realizing it probably needs to develop its own homegrown technologies. You see this in aviation, where they're investing very significantly in developing a rival to Boeing and Airbus jets. Now, they're still a few years away from that, but I think the trade war has probably reinforced how important that is to them. Similarly, in gas turbines, they're investing significantly in having technology that competes with the highest level that GE and Siemens produce. And Siemens CEO said just the other day he expects them to have that capability by 2025. So how much market share are GE and Siemens going to be able to get in the gas turbine market in China, which is is expected to be the biggest market for gas turbines for the foreseeable future. So I think if you make too drastic of a move and, and try to refocus yourself on the U.S., you do risk being cut out of some of these other markets that realistically are going to be growing a lot faster than the U.S., which is fairly mature at this point. It's interesting. I think a lot of industrial companies are thinking, I've, I've read a lot about, oh, we're going to, we can maybe pull our production or our sourcing out of China, maybe put in some other countries that might be, you know, almost as good, almost as efficient. Have you heard any particular countries or regions that might benefit from the change in supply chain? Yeah, I think people are looking at Vietnam, they're looking at Indonesia, they're looking at those areas. But of course, those countries can be economically linked to what ultimately happens with China. If you see a drop off in demand in China, that can sort of make its way throughout the Southeast Asian economy. And so I think there are risks to that as well. Obviously, there are some political questions with those economies as well. And the other thing is just that this is very expensive. You just can't do this overnight. And so I think that gets back to the question of how long do you think we're going to be in this mess for? And, and, you know, do you think that the dynamic has now shifted so much that China is completely unsafe to use as a as a sourcing for your products, or do you think that you're going to wait this out? So what other levers do these big industrial companies have that are multinationals? Can they, I mean, is it just cutting jobs and cutting costs? 
I, I think a lot of it is going to be cutting jobs and cutting costs. I mean, I think you've already seen a pretty significant move in the industry toward automation, toward robotics. And I think if you think that this is the new normal of having higher costs that you have to deal with in your business, that's only going to incentivize these companies to invest even more in that technology and sort of intermediate some of these other cost pressures. Um, now, of course, you know, it's sort of an ironic twist for a president who really campaigned on increasing manufacturing jobs. And instead, you know, one side effect that we are already seeing from the trade wars that there's been a lot of cuts to the manufacturing sector. Challenger Gray had numbers out earlier this week that showed a 620% increase in manufacturing job cuts so far this year relative to this period last year. So you're already feeling the pain there. The jobs report today, only 3,000 manufacturing job gains. That's a very weak number, sort of consistent with the trend we've seen so far. And so, you know, I do think ultimately manufacturing companies aren't passing costs on directly to the consumer because they don't sell necessarily to you and me, but the consumer or the average American is going to feel it in one way or another. Brooke Sutherland, thank you so much. Uh, Brooke Sutherland, deals and industrials columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. She covers all things industrials, and I think that was very interestingly said about Brooke's comments about how we are really seeing it in the uh, manufacturing numbers starting to come out over the last couple of months. A little bit of a you know a crack in the industrial uh, story. Well, to me, my big takeaway is they just don't have that many levers. They don't have the ability yep. to bring a lot of jobs back here because they cater to all of these other cunt- countries. It's right. not so simple, but it's interesting. Yeah. And, and it goes back to the, you know, what has happened really over the last couple of generations, which is a really a global supply chain across many industries. The question is, can you unwind that? Very difficult appears. This is Bloomberg. So we've talked a lot about the macro economy. Let's take a look at specific companies that are actually tapping the market and doing wonderfully. Online fashion retailer Revolve Group jumped its in its trading debut after raising $212 million in its IPO. Joining us now is the CFO of that company, Jesse Timmermans, uh, from Cerritos, California. Jesse, congratulations on the IPO. It does seem to be well-received. Uh, 50% uh, increase in the share prices after the IPO. Just give us a sense, what is Revolve Group? Yeah, and uh, thanks for having me. Revolve Group is really, you know, what we believe is the, the the leading fashion destination for this next generation consumer, that millennial female that's looking for the latest and greatest fashion. So, Jesse, so how do you target your customers? Like, or how do you attract your customers, per se? Yeah, it's a it's a combination um, of our data-driven merchandising strategy and, you know, bringing the latest and greatest styles, but combined with a very social media brand marketing influencer led marketing strategy that really speaks to this millennial consumer you know where we want to be where she is and right now she is on her phone and um, constantly um, looking for the latest and greatest and discovering so but what does that mean jesse because i think every retailer wants that right so is this advertising on instagram and facebook and uh you know that which is which is what every retailer is trying to do or is it uh something different yeah, about uh, 25% of our, our marketing budget goes towards influencer-led brand marketing. So that means influencers will wear our clothes and speak about our brand on on Instagram, and their followers then see that um, and react. The other 75% of our marketing strategy is the more, you know, what we call today is a more traditional digital-based advertising, the Googles and Facebooks of the world. So give us a sense, um, kind of how the competitive landscape for you, who do you really compete against uh, for these consumers and their dollars? 
Yeah, it's really tough, um, you know, to call out a single competitor. We feel like we're well positioned um, in this intersection of the the landscape moving towards e-commerce from the traditional department stores, and also the millennial purchasing power increasing over time. You know, there's a lot of uh, you know good companies out of Europe that are doing well in connecting with this consumer. There's some some in the private markets. Um, you know, if we look. If we look to the traditional department stores, we found they haven't, you know, they haven't been able to connect with this millennial consumer the way we have. I think it's really uh, interesting. I'm looking right now at some of the offerings and, and the concept of using influencers is something that has been gaining steam and is really compelling to me. So is it something where an influencer can wear something and then you can click in and buy it? In other words, is there some kind of linking of your website to some of these Instagram posts or, or other things? Yeah, it, you know, there's a very, what we, we believe, you know, creates a brand halo. So more than anything, it creates that connection with the consumer. And she's seeing our, our influencers and our clothes um, every day as she, as she looks for the latest and greatest. Now, that said, there are ways to go, go from Instagram to our website. And then most recently, we were chosen as one of the um, 21st partners with the Instagram direct checkout, um, which creates another avenue for for that customer to check out directly from Instagram. All right, Jesse, you're the CFO. You're the money person. You just got $212 million in your account. How are you going to spend it? <laughs> yeah, and, and maybe I will clarify that um, most of that was secondary. So not much going on the balance sheet. We're, uh, you know, we're, we've been profitable for 15 out of 16 years. We have cash on the balance sheet with no debt. So, you know, we're well positioned. Um, you know, there's there will be opportunities to you know, expand in the future. But, um, you know, a, a big piece of this uh, was secondary. Jesse, I, I want to pick up on what you're talking about with the Instagram checkout, because that's sort of where I was heading. And that seems to be an increasing push by some of these big social media companies with Facebook uh, starting to sort of play around with payments. Also, I'm just wondering, how much do you think that is the future in some ways of social media and how it interacts with its advertisers and its retail brands? Yeah, it's, um, you know, we're in the very early stages, so it's hard to tell at this point. Um, um, but I think it is interesting and, and consumers are looking for, you know, new ways to transact, you know, whether it's, you know, outside of the more traditional credit cards into the alternative payments or installment plans. Um, so again, very early, we think it, you know, it, it could be powerful, but, um, you know, too early to call. So Jesse, give us a sense of where you get your product, the the clothing that your suppliers. How do you keep on keep in front of what is a fickle uh, uh, consumer segment? Yeah, that is one of the the core pillars to the company. Mike and Michael, our co-founders, were not fashion guys. Um, they were, you know, one was an engineer, one was a finance major. So from day one, they approached this um, this proposition very differently, and it, it's been data driven from day one. So we look at data um, and we read the latest and greatest and then drive behind that. So we carry a very broad and shallow inventory base. If the data tells us something hits, then we'll go deep on that. But it's a constant iteration. We have over 45,000 styles on the site and constantly gathering data there. We also have developed a portfolio of over 20 of our own brands. And we use that data to tell us where we right. need to go and develop additional brands or additional styles within those own brands. Very interesting. Jesse Timmermans, uh, Chief Financial Officer for Revolve Group. The company went public today. The stock is up 59% to $28.50, so a fantastic uh, first day of trading. 
uh, for the company Revolve Group. Uh, Jesse, thanks so much for joining us. It's interesting how the you know the retail industry continues to evolve. Um, you know that the traditional bricks and mortar in the mall uh, that seems to be a thing of the past, and uh, we're seeing new models come into the retail space. And this one, obviously, extraordinarily successful in the stock market day one. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.